And now, with Sound Investing, here's Paul Merriman. Well, it's great to be back after a three-week vacation, a wonderful trip, uh, including Amsterdam and Switzerland and uh, Italy and and finally in in Paris. It, uh, it was not exactly relaxing, but it was a lot of fun, and uh, I'm... Uh, I'm happy to be back at work. So I came back to um, a lot of emails and questions, both through info at uh, paulmerriman.com as well as directly to my email address, uh, personal email address. And uh, uh, most of them had to do with uh, the topic of, um, surrounding small cap values. Some of those questions had to do uh, really related to the the target date fund, uh, two funds for life strategy. Uh, I'm going to be leaving that uh, to Chris Pedersen to respond to uh, in the coming weeks. As a matter of fact, uh, Chris and I will be co-presenting uh, in uh, Orlando for the American Association of Individual Investors uh, annual conference. I'm extremely excited about that because uh, Chris will not only be discussing the two funds for life as you know it, but he's going to show some uh, additional strategies during the accumulation stage for those of you who are saving for retirement. And then he will talk about two funds for life in retirement, and that will be uh, a focus of uh, some work as uh, Chris and I move forward, along with the help of uh, Daryl and Rich Buck and all, uh, to, uh, to help you understand more about what we think uh, is a legitimate uh, and productive way to invest. And uh, when we talk about a legitimate and productive way to invest. That does lead me to the conversation I want to have with you here today. As I said, I have received a lot of, uh, uh, of email questions regarding small cap value. I have also uh, been directed to other sites where our work is being discussed, sometimes favorably and sometimes not so favorably. But I do think that there is uh, a legitimate conversation to be had with the prudence of the use of small cap value. In some ways, uh, under certain circumstances, I would guess that the same question would be asked about the prudence of investing in stocks, period, because there are periods that people don't look so favorably at what the stock market does to them rather than for them. And, uh, and so while I was away and had those early morning hours uh, to, in essence, be by myself in the lobby of some hotel because what I needed to do to get up early and get some work done was to very quietly leave the hotel room where I was with my wife and oftentimes with shoes and socks in hand trying to be just as quiet as I possibly could be and then I would finish dressing and go to the lobby uh, and uh, 
And by the way, I had some interesting conversations with people uh, in the lobby at uh, 4 and 5 o'clock in the morning. I'll talk more about that another time. But the study that I decided to do and that uh, I will, along with Rich Buck, will do an article about this. It will be part of my presentation uh, in Orlando. But I decided to think about investing and making investment decisions based on what's happened recently. Now, I'm not talking about what has happened recently in the last year or five or ten I think most of you know that 10 years' worth of returns are simply noise. In fact, we could even see that to be possible or likely looking at 20 years of returns. Simply noise. Obviously, it's not noise in your life or my life because I'm not sure that I've got 20 more in mine. And so uh, I, I would like to think that the next 20 years are not just a bunch of noise, but uh, are doing the right thing for me and my wife and my family. But of course, we don't know. And so what I did was I, I, I did something that I knew my wife would not approve of. I took along the Matrix book from, uh, from DFA. And the Matrix book is, I don't know, it must be uh, maybe uh, 14 inches by 12 inches. It's a big book with tons and tons of numbers starting in 1928 and giving me the uh, easy access to the compound rate of return between any two years starting in 1928, in some cases 1926, so that I could see how did an investment in the S&P 500 do from 1928 to 1972? Now, why would that be worth looking at? Well, I said, what if that is the point at which you are the investor? All you know about, and I'm assuming that this information from DFA, all this academic research that's been done about past returns, would be there to look at. Well, it wasn't there to look at. But we can play the what-if game. What if you had access to it? What would you have known from 1928 to 1972 to make a good decision about where to put your money for the long term. And that could be fixed income. It could be equities. Now, the belief in equities was not as strong at that point as it is today, but it was pretty strong. It was during that late part of the 60s, uh, the two and a half years or so that I was in the securities business, that uh, people were pretty high on stocks. But if we had this data, here's what we would have known. We would have known that the S&P 500 compounded from 1928 to 1972 at 9.3% a year. Now, that's not the magic 10% so many of us talk about, and, and um, some so-called experts even talk about 12%. Very misleading experts, but, but they use the number 12. Well, it wasn't 10 and it wasn't 12. The compound rate of return 
was 9.3%. And yes, that did include the reinvestment of dividends. And no, it didn't include taxes. And no, it didn't include any kind of of operating expense to, to manage that index. Just the raw return. Now, that was a pretty doggone good return because what we know about that same period from 1928 to 1972, that long-term U.S. government bonds compounded at 2.8%. Treasury bills compounded at 2%. And inflation during that period of time was 2%. That's what people do. So if somebody asked you, what do you think that inflation will be in the future? I wouldn't be surprised if you said 2%. And what kind of a return would would government bonds get? I wouldn't be surprised if you said 3% because that's what you knew. Now, people didn't even know the S&P 500 in 1972. Well, they did know they did know in theory, yes, because in 1957, the index, the 500 S&P 500, uh, was actually created. So it had been around for a while, but that's not what people were watching. People talked about the Dow Jones 30 like it was the market. But you would have easily have concluded that you would have done a whale of a lot better in stocks, even though they're more risky than you would have in bonds, 28 to 72. Now, we didn't know the total market index then. Certainly, Vanguard didn't have one available. But the academics have recreated the total market index basically the same way it looks at Vanguard today going back to 1928. In fact, that may even go back to 26. But in these particular numbers, I'm looking at 28 to 72. Well, how did the total market index do for that same period, 28 to 72? Well, see, the beauty of the total market index, you're thinking, is it isn't relegated just to large companies like the S&P 500 is. No, you get small companies and you get more value. You get some things to give you a little boost and you can say, I own the whole market. And your compound rate of return from 28 to 72 instead of 9.3% would have been 8.9%. Now we know today, and you didn't know it then, The value makes more uh, than growth. In fact, the value growth relative returns are much more impactful than the difference between small and large. So the question is, how much more, if we can go back and look at the data, how much more would you have made in large value over the S&P 500? Well, you're not going to be too excited because you would have made 9.2% from 1928 to 1972. One-tenth of 1% less, not more. 
Where there did seem to be an impact, and a meaningful impact, was the small blend index. It compounded at 10.8. And look out, here comes that small cap value, 1928 to 72. The compound rate of return, instead of 10.8 for the blend, was 10.9. You picked up one-tenth of a percent more by having small cap value in your portfolio. So how popular would my advice have been in 1973, knowing what we do about the period from 28 to 72? So we can see clearly that we should be putting our money into equities over fixed income because when you take inflation into consideration, basically, oh, and then you add taxes, Oh, my gosh. Okay, you add taxes. Now you're really losing by being in bonds. But you could feel secure. And one of the reasons that people felt secure in those bonds was because most of the people who were, many of the people who were investors and alive in 1972 probably know a whole lot about the Depression and what happened to stocks. And that was the reason a lot of people, in fact, had their money in bonds. They knew that stocks made more, but they also knew that stock could, in their mind, lose everything. Okay. Now, why did I use 1972? Well, because we know in 73 and 74, all the things that we knew about the past, or most of them, because that 1928 to 72 did include the tough times in the early 30s along with 1929. But by adding two more years of data, 73 and 74, a period that represents a severe bear market, just like the 2007 through 2009, basically just like the, the losses that were sustained from 1973 and 1974 or 2000 through 2002, they were all about the same. You had to be willing to lose half of your money. Well, when you throw in the losses for 73 and 74, the long-term return of the S&P 500 is no longer 9.3%. But if you want to be real about it and look at history and learn from history, the long-term return from 1928 to 1974 was 7.8%. 7.8%. Now where's the magic of the 10% compound rate of return? You know, you're in the market for, what, 47 years or something, and you, and, 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 and you make 7.8%. Well, you can say that's not bad because for that same period, the U.S. government long bond compounded at 2.8, Treasury bills at 2.2, and inflation was 2.4. Again, bonds were losers. So even making 7.8% would be good. The problem is, is all the people who just started in 73 and 74, they know what investing is about. Investing is 99.9% .9 about losing and not trusting. One of the lessons I, I, I learned in Europe was I think I was, we were in uh, Ottlebottom, Ottlebottom, Uh sorry, uh, 
and, and uh, a, a young couple were leaving very early in the morning, and uh, they were from uh, Serbia. And he found out. Well, he asked what I what I did. I told him I was retired. He said, "Well, what did you do before you retired?" And I told him. And he said, "Oh gosh, I, I'd love to be able to, to to invest in the stock market." I said, "Well, where do you put your money?" Because the, this young fellow's been very successful, it appears, in business from the conversation we had. And uh, he said, oh, I, I, there's only one place I can put it that, uh, that I trust, and that's in gold. I said, are you telling me that, that in Serbia you cannot invest in companies outside of your own economy? Oh, we can, he said. He said, we can, but... I have to do it through a brokerage company there uh, locally, and I don't trust them. It's not that I don't think the stocks might not do well, but I think they'll steal my money. I mean, really, he could not trust the stock brokerage firm in that country to, in essence, guard his money. And so he felt, and that's what he was doing, he was putting all of his money in, in gold, trust, what a big item trust is. Well, after the 7374 bear market, I can tell you that a lot of investors, many of them just getting started, uh, certainly uh, lost their trust. But what were the real numbers from 28 to 74? What did we learn about the return? Well, the S&P went down to 7.8 instead of 9.3. The total market index, 7.3 instead of 8.9. Large value, um, 8.1 instead of 9.2. Small blend, 8.5. And small value, 9.1. Well, that's interesting that small value did, in fact, give a better uh, premium than small cap blend. And large cap value did give a, a minor premium uh, over the S&P 500, but probably not enough to make anybody a believer. And I can tell you that what people believed in was it was not the stock market. Now, those were days when people were being encouraged to put money in, in, in bonds and annuities and things that would protect you from the market going down. So from 1975 through 1983, the money in that, that the public had invested in stocks, they were in net redemption. The public was getting out of the stock market because it was not a trustworthy, good place to be. So then fast forward to 1999. Now, I suspect that the people who had suffered through the 73-74 bear market would be shocked to find out that for the next 25 years, the S&P 500 compounded at 7.2%. Now, all of a sudden, the total market index starts showing some spirit here and compounded at 173 You made one-tenth of 1% 1 more because you were smart enough to add the small cap and the additional value and some mid-cap. That additional small and whatever else you threw in there that you thought was going to make you uh, a better return and represent uh, the small-cap premium that maybe somebody thought there was, it, did, it was not enough 
to move the needle. But large cap value, 197 2.5% premium. Small cap blend, 20 Small cap value, 22.3%. All of a sudden, people who look back over the last 25 years at the end of 1999 can discover this thing called small cap value. And in fact, small cap and small cap value had become more commonly discussed because the work of Dr. Fama and Dr. French had alerted people to the premiums that were to be expected for small cap. Now, this was not just a period that you were, that you were rewarded for being in equities. It was a period you were rewarded for being in bonds. The long-term government bond compounded at 9.4%, up from 28 between 28 and 74. Over three times the return. Treasury bills, instead of 2.2, made 6.8. And inflation for that 25-year period was 48 And that may not sound like a really big deal, but at times it was over 10. So, what a home run. I was talking, uh, presenting to the Puget Sound, AAII, a lot of gray-haired people like myself there, and I asked how many of you were there for that run, and a lot of hands went up, way over half about the same number of hands that went up for people who said they have a pension. They have a pension. And they basically all agreed that was one of the greatest financial luxuries for their retirement was having that guaranteed check coming in every month, regardless of what the market did. So what did we learn from 28 to 74 that paid us the premium for the next 25 years, and I guess we could say, well, the one thing we should have taken note of was the huge premium for stocks over bonds, and that inflation can take virtually all of the return, along with taxes, that you'll make in bonds. Well, it, it, it uh, was a little better for bonds in the 75 to 99 period. So now we have a new set of things we believe in. The people who could look back at the previous 25 years. And by that time, by the way, John Bogle and the S&P 500 fund was front and center. And people are saying it's almost impossible to beat the S&P 500. Now, Very few people knew to even compare it to the small cap value or the small cap blend or even the large cap value. But remember, 85 approximately percent of uh, corporate America is represented by the S&P 500. So it's no wonder that people uh, focused on on the S&P 500. And in fact, the managers who actively manage within that universe tend to underperform the S&P 500 itself, something most of you know. But we also can understand that, that, that why at the end of 1999, long-term investors thinking 25 years surely has some meaning. 
Well, it was followed by a 19-year period of the S&P 500 compounding at 4.9. And the total market index at 5.2. Oh, hmm. I can see maybe why people think the total market index is a good place to be because, yes, you can make more uh, than the S&P 500. And that, that must come from having some of that small cap in there. But you wouldn't want any more small cap than what's in the total market index because you believe in cap weighting your investment. And when you cap weight your investment... The outcome is that the very, very, very large companies um, create most of the return. Small companies have little, have little impact, not in a cap-weighted portfolio. But during that same 19-year period, large cap value compounded at 7.2. Whoa, there's a 2% premium for large value. Small cap blend, 9.9. There is a 5% premium for small cap. That's that's not even having to do with value. By the time you add value, it was 11.2. Well, you can understand why there are people around that think that small cap value is something worth having in the portfolio. How much, of course, is a big question. But that it's an asset class. And that phrase, asset class, becomes important because when you're in a cap-weighted portfolio, it's not about asset classes. It's simply about giving access to the pool of investments based on the number of shares times the price per share. So it, 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 it doesn't try to differentiate between uh, the returns of small versus large or value versus growth. It just is going to invest based on the cap weighting of each individual company. But the question then becomes, is that the best way to invest? Or is it possible that by... Asset class weighting. Maybe you give large blend 10% of the portfolio and large value 10% of the portfolio and small blend 10% of the portfolio and small value 10 may go on and on until you have a portfolio that could represent 12, 15,000 different companies, but they are put together based on percentages of asset classes, not based on how big the companies are. Well, oh, I didn't finish off the 2000 through 2018 long government bonds, U.S. bonds 6.9, Treasury bills 1.6, and inflation 2.1. The absolutely guaranteed, or as close to guarantee as we know, uh, dug you into a deeper and deeper hole. I'm talking about treasury bills. So what do we do with all of this? Uh, people, by the way, people don't call this market timing. But I think it is when I say 
that it looks to me like uh, it's better to be just in U.S. equities now because look what's been happening over the last X number of years. And that value premium uh, from uh, from 2000 through 2018, that was a complete fluke. And um, I don't think there's going to be a premium for small cap anymore or for value anymore, somebody might say. And somebody else might try to make a determination of the direction of interest rates and say, better stay out of those long bonds because interest rates are going up and people in long bonds are going to get killed. All of that kind of talk is market timing. Uh, It's a prediction. And I think we all agree that the people, most of the people around us that we know are not qualified to make those predictions. We can, of course. We can feel strongly about what we see. But those other folks, they're they're just, they're blowing smoke, okay? But I've got an idea. I've got a feeling. Well, that feeling is all about market timing, and I am not, I'm not being judgmental about market timing But I have no idea how to quantify your beliefs, how to track your beliefs over the last, oh, let's say 50 years, and how you changed a day to day about equities or fixed income or saving or spending or all those things that would give me an idea of how to put a return factor on what's happened to your predictions. So I'm giving up on that. I have no way to know about Main Street, my neighbors, my friends. I do have the ability to see the returns of equity funds as in, in different groups. And I can see that indexes generally outperform the actively managed portfolios. And I can see that the actively managed portfolios over a 15-year period end up in the in the in in the bottom ten percent, or excuse me, the bottom ninety percent, and about ten percent make it up into being competitive or even better than the S and P five hundred or small cap blend or whatever that index might be. So, um, do I find cause because small cap value hasn't done well? recently. Well, if you're talking about 20 years, here's what I know through the end of of, of 2018, that there is not one 20-year period, going back to 1928, that small cap value underperformed. Uh, the S&P 500, by the way, there were lots of periods where the return was very, very similar, like sometimes within one-tenth of one percent. So you didn't, you didn't underperform, I guess, but you certainly didn't get the premium you expected. Now, In the case of large value and small blend, there were a handful of periods. Three three periods with large value, seven periods with small blend, but the 
the, the underperformance was less than 1% a year. So I haven't seen anything that tells me if I believe in asset class uh, uh, perf- uh, building the portfolio based on percentages of asset classes as opposed to cap weighted. I don't I see anything that would encourage me to change. As a matter of fact, if I look at the last uh, 19 years, uh, I would say for those people who had a part of their portfolio in small value and small blend and large value, uh, they came out way ahead of people who cap-weighted. And in the previous 25 years, whoa, wait a minute, it looks like the same thing happened again. If you include some small value and some small blend along with the large value and the S&P 500 and you cap-weighted amongst those four major asset classes, that's all you did, you came out ahead again. If you did the same thing from 1928 to 1972, you didn't come out ahead by much, but you came out ahead So am I willing to throw in the towel? Well, if I say I'm not, there will be a handful of you. In fact, it, 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 it could be more than a handful who say, come on, Paul, you're just trying to justify what you've recommended to people. And if you suggest that you might be wrong, that uh, maybe they wouldn't trust you. Maybe they wouldn't know whether to follow you. They think you know. You know you don't know, Merriman. Of course you know that, and I'm the first to agree with that, which is, by the way, the reason I'm such an advocate of diversification. And then somebody will attack me. I've seen it. They're attacking me because I'm recommending young people have a whole lot of small cap value in the portfolio. Well, I, I feel that way. And, and, and in fact, those of you who are suggesting that it might underperform for a, a period of time, I'm saying good. Because if I could figure out a way to let young people get into whatever position they take in small cap value at lower prices, I'm okay with that. That's what we want in essence. By the way, the same would be true of the S&P 500. So uh, I, I hope some of this is helpful. And you know, We all want to have a sense that that we one, we have some control. Well, you have control over your saving. And you have control kind of over your spending. I am going this Saturday to address some 125 relatively young people that are part of the what they call the FIRE movement. It's the it's the financial independence retire early. And by the way. Uh, this whole thing about retiring early. I've talked to enough of them now that, for the large part, these people who want to retire early are focused on maybe trying to retire at 60 instead of 70, as so many of the people around them are likely going to have to do. This is not about people trying to drop out, retire at age 30 or 40 and just drop out. These are generally all productive people. 
not all, but you know, a lot of investors aren't very productive in the world. They just have money to invest. And I'm happy for them. But that's not the goal that I have for myself, nor for you. But, you know, you set your own goals. Here's the, here's the reality, is that nobody knows what the next important period of time is going to bring. We could talk about from 1928 to 74. Wow, that's a long period of time with an expectation, if you had it, of a 10% return that the S&P 500 only made 78 and what do we know? I mean, I can, I can, I can hear it in the in the complaints from older people about what are we going to do to get a better rate of return on our fixed income instruments? We never believed that returns would be this low. If we had, we might have tied up our money in an in an annuity that guaranteed a six percent payout for the rest of my life. But I didn't know. So that's the part of the presentation, and uh, another part uh, we'll talk about another day. Uh, I hope to see some of you in, uh, uh, in Orlando, and uh, I look forward to seeing some of you in Charlotte, both uh, from the Choose FI, the FIRE folks, as well as the AAII folks, and uh, I continue to hope that our work will help you be a, a better investor, and I'm always ready for a good debate. So thank you for those of you who have taken the time to, to uh, challenge me. I really do appreciate it. All the best to you. That was Paul Merriman with Sound Investing. Sound Investing, soundinvesting.com, and paulmerriman.com are produced and exclusively owned by Paul Merriman, who is solely responsible for their content. For more information, free articles, mutual fund recommendations, and more, visit paulmerriman.com.